My name's Helen Drake and I'm the current chair of UACES. And I'm here with Joe Shaw, a former UACES chair. And I'm here with Richard Whitman, also former UACES chair, my predecessors in other words. And um, hello Richard, hello Joe. I'd like to ask a few questions about your time as, as UACES chair. So maybe the first question is just to test your memory and ask you when you were to tell us when you were chair mm -hmm. and tell us what it was like for you being chair. Um, for example, how did you go about setting your agenda and your strategy? Um, you know, UACES has a constitution. Did that give you ideas or, or did you... Uh, did you uh, devise your agenda and your strategy sort of from other sources? So I don't mind who goes first. Maybe, Joe, do you want to go first? Well, I'm the older vintage, so maybe yes. <laughs> Although I think when I joined the um, when I joined the, the committee in 2000, I think Richard might have been on the committee I at was, that point. Yeah. Uh, then he left the committee and then came back again as, as chair later on. Uh, I was on the committee from 2000 to 2003, and then I was chair from 2003 to 2006. So it's quite some time ago, so you'll appreciate that um, the memories are not necessarily that, that fresh. But nonetheless, it was uh, a great experience to be, to be chair. That, that time, I think, was a crucial period of time when, when UACES was really building up its engagement with the Student Forum uh, and also was developing its internationalization. I think those were two things that uh, Clive Archer had already uh, started and, and I was very pleased to carry on building building those. So I, I'm not sure I innovated in terms of, of strategy and approach, um, but I um, perhaps pushed a number of things in that in that in that domain, uh, which Clive had already started developing. Well, one thing in relation to internationalisation was that you talked about the constitution. Uh, we changed the constitution so that that institutionalised having um, uh, a member of the committee who uh, was part of the group of members, the growing group of members, now very significant yeah. group of members who are not based in, in the UK. Of course, the, the UK-based group is very international because um, of the still uh, strong internationalisation of British universities. Um, but very large numbers of people were now uh, active in UACs who were based outside the UK. And it seemed to me to be important to ensure that they had some voice on the committee so that they uh, felt that it was um, more and more an a European association and not just somehow a UK association that had some type of sort of um, irredentist <laughs> ambitions almost vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the, the, the other uh, European um Exas European Community Studies Associations uh, that are organised um, under under the frame of the sort of commission-sponsored World Exa. So those were some of the things that that really inspired me in terms of my work. Um, I'll pass to Richard now. Thank you. Well, in between the two of us, there was a there was another chair, which was uh, Alex Woolley Lack. So I came in from two thousand nine to twenty twelve, and I think it's interesting to sort of look across that period because. I think by uh, the late 2000s, we had already established, and it was, it was a sort of well-established idea that the, the conference sort of went overseas without it being something was exceptional. Because, mm. you, you know, you may remember when you were chair, it was uh, Zagreb. Zagreb yeah. We had the Zagreb conference. That was the first? No, the first, no, no, Budapest. Uh, Budapest. Yeah, there was an anniversary okay, conference yeah. in Budapest, yeah. but that was seen to be exceptional, yeah. I think. And the then I think yeah. from, from Zagreb on, onwards, I think really the idea was established that essentially 
because the membership, you know, was you know a sort of internationally focused association, and therefore the idea should be that going overseas wasn't exceptional. It was sort of part of the bread and butter of, of the way that the the association functioned, and the fact that the conference really was for most people the sort of centerpiece of their engagement with mm-hmm. uh, with UACs, and so. Uh, uh, we also have by that time sort of established the idea that there was a, a very active competition actually to host uh, the mm. annual uh, conference, whereas uh, I think in the past it, it, it's, the idea had been really that it, it was sort of UK universities. I think one of the things that was very well established um, by the early 2000s was that you know we had overseas institutions that were willing, uh, able and, and even to tussle between themselves to sort of host the, the conference, which I think was reflective as Joe said, uh, of the sort of changing composition of the membership, where we were sort of the 50% mark in terms of the number of members who were non-UK, uh, non-UK based, I think, and then non-UK nationals, but it was even larger, actually, in terms of, in terms of the sort of composition of the membership. I think the other, the other thing that we, uh, that we did establish by the late 2000s was, was what you might call the, uh, something that had always been there in the history of UACs, which was practitioner engagement. But mm. I think it, it, it developed in a more structured way, uh, in the sense that we we started to have events in Brussels which were intended to sort of sell uh, European studies research back into Brussels, which was, uh, I think, it was an innovation under uh, Alex, and, and we had that established uh, by that time. Uh, and, of course, the, the sort of stable of UACs publications uh, was also developed because, mm. you know, JASA... Uh, came into existence as well uh, alongside JCMS and the book series also transferred from Sheffield uh, mm-hmm. Sheffield University Press to to Routledge right. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If, if I could just interject perhaps on the internationalisation um, along with em- Emily Linneman our executive director we've been back to the early minutes um, back to the, si- the, the late 60s when, when UACs began its life and um, uh, there were interesting discussions, we've seen them from the papers, not just the minutes um, first of all about whether students should even be members, so it was mm. it was not a student mm. membership association at that point, so um, it's interesting that you talked about the student forum when you set mm. up because that is now a very important aspect mm. of UACs and you both developed that, but also internationalisation um, looking back to those early papers Papers, there were discussion, and in fact, in the first ever mission statement, um, uh, the wording was along the lines of UACs, or it, yeah, in its early incarnation, would have relations with continental universities. Um, and then some of the very first committee meetings talked about what's what those relations would look like, and there mm-hmm. were there was quite a, a strong opinion that other countries should have their own associations mm. and it strikes me as current chair that one of the big developments has been the way that UACs is now the biggest European Studies Association in the world um, not just in the in Europe and it's, it's bigger the, than USA now it's bigger it? than USA now bigger than the European Union Studies Association which is the US mm-hmm. USA equivalent so um, yeah so your efforts in in these respects have have been part and parcel, I think, mm. of quite significant changes to the association mm. and its remit. I think that one of the the things that, that UACs has evolved mm. over time has been at the conference. When I first attended some, some UACs events, and I, I think Richard's a predecessor to me than that, because as, a, as, a, as a, an academic lawyer, I was maybe slightly more 
um, not quite so so central to some of the disciplines at a certain point, although there had always been lawyers involved in, in UACs. Um, but when I started to, to go to a few events, then the, the annual conference was in, in January, right. and that seemed like a very dark time of the year to have it. <laughs> and then somebody came up with the idea of having a research conference as well, which was the yeah. September one, yeah. and that was very, very, very lively. And I think that coincided with the period of time when uh, Drew Scott and Simon Bulmer were JCMS editors, and they infused yeah. a lot of academic engagement and credibility and... Um, you know, really, really took JCMS on uh, from from strength to strength, and that I think fed back into the idea of having a research conference. People came up with various opportunities to to sort of build that up. Yeah. You know, um, special events, anniversaries, one thing and another as as the years went by. And by the time I took on being chair and joined the joined the, joined the, even joined the committee, then yeah. you know the, the September conference was established as yeah. the event. But although it's grown over the years, um, it still retains a certain sort of size and focus that that the large international conferences yeah. don't have. So you actually do think that there's some real academic work going on within the framework of the conference. It isn't just about networking. No, it isn't just good. about. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to be there because it's it's a hiring venue and that type yeah. of thing. Yeah. It has a genuine academic exchange dimension to it. And I was delighted to see that you were, you know, playing around with different types of, of, of sessions this uh -huh. year, you know, the different types of questions yeah. about what academics do and should be doing in in European studies. So, you know, each chair brings their own dynamic. Yeah. I think I'd agree with Joe that the game changer was having the, the research conference because, you know, prior to 1995, which was the first research conference, I mean, the, the winter conference, as it was, was essentially a sort of gathering of academics uh, and practitioners. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people thought it was a way of sort of topping up little lecture notes in terms of, you know, seeing what practitioners were saying about particular policy, policy areas. But from 95 onwards... Of course, what it also did then was to to create the capacity for people to be involved in the conference, not uh, conference as participants by yeah. delivering papers, rather than just being sort of consumers of plenary uh, type sessions. And in turn, I think that fed the internationalisation because there was in a conference opportunity that people could make paper proposals to uh, and attend and so on. I think originally it was uh, every other year. I think maybe the first. I know. I know the first one was Birmingham, and I think the second was Loughborough. The second uh, conference, but but for a while you're right. The two things ran in parallel, didn't they? Mm. I, mean, you had... I mean, you're right. Going through the papers again, um, the the January one was a, always a one day event, and it, it was sort of um, yeah, it was invitation only, as in the speakers were by invitation only, and it mm. was a uh, uh, I wouldn't not the great and the good, but sort of prominent members of the mm. profession plus practitioners and. So um, the research conference, uh, yeah, that that was supposed to be something very different, and now they've merged. But I, I like to think we've kept the best of both, mm -hmm. um, in that we still do have the plenaries and mm. with invited speakers, so that people can top up the lecture notes, mm. as you say, mm. um, while also participating. I mean, one of the things I know was a, an anxiety, and I don't know whether it still holds, is the sort of blend within the individual panels themselves between more experienced mm. academics and. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and PhD students, because I know it's something that we we sort of agonised over in the past, you know, mm. to make sure that it was useful, particularly for PhD mm. students, you know, to have panels which were um, provide that function. But I think also now that you've got the 
the student forum. You know, you've mm. got that learning venue which is separate, mm. uh, but obviously still connected to the to the main conference, isn't it? Mm. Okay. No, the, 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 I mean, the things grow in parallel. But I, in in terms of the development of a, of you know ensuring that early career researchers get get a good you know a good deal out of UACs. Again, this year you you've introduced a, a, a sort of early career. Um, yeah, membership. That's right, a new tier. Yeah, yeah, a new tier of membership between the PhD students mm -hmm. and, as it were, the full members, which I think is a is important. I, 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 it was one of these things of, oh, didn't we do that before? But yeah. clearly not. <laughs> it seems yeah. so natural. Yeah. And yeah. I think, sorry, if I could just add, I mean, one of the things is that the early career tier, mm. um, those those members are full members in mm. their own right, yeah. mm. in the way that student members are full members in mm. their own right, as well as the more mature members, shall mm. we say. So there's, there's not a junior membership, it's just uh, recognising that mm. they're at a different point in their career and sort of, uh, mm. and so on. So I'm, I'm glad that that's been noticed mm. and mm. it seems a good thing. I, I think that what, what what's important about UACs is the way in which sort of understanding career development is organic to to the organization it's you know to the institution it's part of the the dna of the institution it's not a it's not a professional association that that exists and then you have to be a member of it because you know you if you would be sort of casting yourself out from your academic discipline yeah. it's 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 something different to that because it's between some of the different traditional disciplines um european studies has had to work hard to yeah. maintain its raison d'etre uh to 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 secure a future not just in the uk but in other in other um parts of ac academia in in the in europe and north america and so on where it's come under um under threat for you know what is it i mean that does move us into perhaps the second broad question it moves mm. nicely in which is the meaning, you know, how the meaning of UACs, both for yourselves mm -hmm. um, as academics and then for your careers more generally. Um, but yes, ha with regards to what some would not even call a discipline, European studies. Mm. So I'd be really interested in your reflections on, on you know, on that sort of the significance of, of UACs, especially 50 years on. Mm. Um, uh, in, the, in those respects, so well, yeah. I've always been an interdisciplinary scholar. My training's in in in, in law, um, but um, I think one of the funniest things that was ever said to me at a UAC's conference was, "You're some sort of lawyer, aren't you?" <laughs> um, by which I I think that was meant as a compliment, um, but it's it's hard it's hard to tell. Um, but but it's uh, I. I, I like to think that I've, you know, been able to to work with both political scientists and legal scholars and bring some of the questions that they ask um, into into debate with each other and, and and be, you know, genuinely interdisciplinary rather than just pluri or multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And that's where UACs can can offer that that opportunity to both to to be within your disciplines, but also to play with the with with the the lines that are between them, and you know, as as a lawyer, as chair of the association, I certainly felt very comfortable. I always thought about UAC's conference as being one where I felt like I could be in my slippers. You know, I could be so I was very comfortable there, and uh, it's a nice image. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't somewhere where you felt that you had to be, you know, somehow uh, on your best behaviour and so on. Um, 
So I think that uh, UAC's conference has, has existed in a way, in a good synergy with, with, the, with this, this interdisciplinary field of European studies. That, that's, that's what I, li I like to think, um, in the sense that it's continued to, to develop and grow as a conference. Yeah. Um, you know, despite the, the challenges that it's, that the, that the field has faced in the UK with the, with the, you know, with, with the REF, the RAE and, and other things. But then, of course, we, we predated the impact agenda yeah. by yeah. Um, yeah. working very actively with, with practitioners in a way that, um, perhaps has, has, you know, now ought to be, now ought to be, um, uh, you know, bearing fruit, but who yeah. knows? I've always thought about uh, UACES more as a more as a sort of clan, in the sense that um, you know that people have quite a lot of loyalty to mm. the association, but it's not on the basis of, of the same kind of affiliation that you get with a discipline. Uh, in the sense that there's a sort of a, there's an acceptance of difference and difference interests, but at the same time, you know, what brings people together is obviously their interest in European integration broadly understood, you know, even if they're coming from quite different, uh, quite different disciplinary backgrounds. And I think also the other thing that's been noticeable about the, uh, the subject area is they haven't really suffered from sort of theological disputes. And I think that also gives the conference uh, a bit of a, a bit of a different feel, because it's not as if the case that people sort of heard to particular panels because they have a sort of particular perspective or they work within a particular school which means they wouldn't necessarily go to another panel so there's there's more of an opportunity to graze i think in terms of uh, in terms of different areas but i think one of the one of the developments that sort of kept that but also helped things to or to allow for a bit more sort of congealing in some areas is the uh, the collaborative research networks and you know mm -hmm. having things where people there are a group of people perhaps who have met through conferences who have identified a shared research agenda have then been able to sort of make a bid to be able to do things either within the conference but also outside the conference in terms of sort of pushing on uh, an area uh, an area of research and I think that's been a far more successful model than the one that other associations have had where you have sections for example or whether you have groups which are much sort of permanent standing structures right. yeah. which can sometimes become quite atrophied because yeah. you know it's the same old people uh, who are sort of doing those or working within them, whereas you know the CRNs are designed in a way to sort of have a fixed term duration to do some things, and there may be a follow-on CRN, but otherwise they would die a sort of natural death, uh, and then you get a new uh, set of ideas come forward. And I think that combination has worked quite well, actually. You know, sort of having the, the general conference, if you like, the general panels, but also having the, the CRN sort of infusing. Uh, the the conference panels, but as I say, also doing things, uh, doing things outside, and they've also I think driven quite a lot of research that probably otherwise wouldn't have been there, mm. but, um, because they this sort of threshold for creating one is much lower than, for example, a very large research project, an H twenty twenty type project, um, where you'd require you know much more much more legwork and obviously much more paperwork to put something into existence. It's very. I mean, if I could just sort of. Uh, uh, in response to to, to your uh, your your insights there, just maybe just you know that perhaps in particular to do what you said about the the research networks and so on. Perhaps we you know we are trying to publicise that sort of thing more in um 
in a time period now when we feel or we, 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 we detect that especially younger scholars' careers are far more tightly perhaps circumscribed by institutional constraints and funding mm. constraints and so on, to the extent that we've noticed even a, a sort of a fall off in demand for things that we're giving uh, in, a, in terms of sort of funding for um, PhD fieldwork, funding for these sorts of research networks. So it's good to hear that, that you know, that they do still represent an intrinsic value and, uh, and that, it, that we can continue to, to encourage our, our younger scholars to, to take them up. But I, you know, maybe to sort of close on this subject without wishing to be negative, is it not the case that that the academic career, particularly in the mm-hmm. UK, so UACs is concerned with that, but not only, you know, perhaps does it squeeze scholars more, do you think? And, and, and in, in so doing, push them towards the big, the big beast, whether it's uh, the big funding councils and, and research councils and so on? Um, or is there still a role for, uh, for us, you know, for our sort of offering, um, which is not... Uh, you know, it's not a big research council, and so mm. on and so forth. I don't... Well, I, you would have, you would have hoped so. Um, I, 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 there's always a whenever I whenever whenever I come to UACs conference, and unfortunately, that's not every year. There are always a a sort of a new sort of early career cadre of of, of um, uh, legal scholars who are coming along Good. for the yeah. first or second time who haven't haven't been along before, and um, it, there's maybe still more space uh, to, to develop that uh, that interest and that engagement, and perhaps also take on some of those leadership type roles. Maybe leadership's the wrong word, but you know, leadership at the the appropriate level, if you will, to launch a, a new network or, yeah. uh, or or whatever. Is is there's still enough space in 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 the legal academic career to, 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 to develop that, that it wouldn't be so constrained. I can't really speak for how the, you know, how political science has become more, more regimented. I have a sense that that's the case. You from, mentioned the ref, which... Yeah, yeah I have a sense that, that, that that's impacted quite heavily in, in, in other disciplines, but I, I, I'm not perhaps the best mm. to comment on that. I think one of the periods in which perhaps um, there might have been... The most heightened anxiety about European studies was the disappearance of European studies uh, as a, as an REE right. panel, mm-hmm. um, because certainly for UK-based scholars, you know that's uh, in terms of the way that research is measured, you know that kind of plugging into that unit of assessment. Mm-hmm. And when that disappeared, I, I think it was potentially a moment of great vulnerability mm-hmm. in terms of European studies uh, within the UK. But I think it's interesting that. Um, UACs and European studies, uh, certainly in the UK, has weathered that storm. It's also weathered, you know, the problems associated with the decline of language teaching, mm-hmm. which European studies was was very much uh, a part of. Uh, uh, and you know, you've ended up with you know conferences which are still of the same scale uh, as was the case previously. But I think one of the things that's absolutely consolidated now. Uh, and I think uh, this is a great thing, is that the, the non-UK nationals yeah. are the sort of defining feature uh, of the conference. You know, the, the balance has shifted clearly uh, across time. And I think that's great news uh, for UACs. I think it's also very, very good news for scholars of European studies in the UK, uh, in the sense that you've already got 
uh, a kind of network that you can plug into very, very easily. And at pretty low cost as well. I mean, that's perhaps one of the other things that um, that uh, we, we we don't give UHCs enough credit for is the sort of the costs of access are quite low. I think not just the financial cost, but also I think the cost of just sort of getting in there in terms of being part of the panel uh, and so on. And some other professional associations have different mechanisms by which they choose conference papers, the right. access points for people in terms of sections or yes. parts of the conference and so on. So I think the sort of gateway or, or the, sort of the, the sort of gatekeeping aspect of participation in the conference uh, is set quite low in a positive yeah. way that allows mm -hmm. people to come and sort of try and then potentially come back again, which is not always the case for some other, from okay. other associations. Uh, so yeah, we've got we've got enough time left to broach a third and final issue, which um, which is let's call it Brexit. Uh, so that's the easiest way to describe the current situation whereby the UK is uh, it has embarked on a process to to um, withdraw from the European Union. Now, you both know as previous chairs that UACES began its life before the. The UK joined what was then the, the community, and in fact, the, the failure to join in the 60s on two occasions, as far as I can work out from looking at the papers, was a spur to uh, the creation of what has now become UACs, as in mm. uh, a worried group of academics in the, the UK wanted to set up a, a group to learn about what was happening on the on the continent and uh, and then as you know within quite a short short space of time to study the um, the the uh, accession process and, and then membership so and so 50 years on as you know sort of one of the things that I've um, uh, spent time on as chair in this year 2017 uh, it's 50 years since 1967 and here we are 50 years on um, with the UK negotiating to leave so I suppose uh, uh, my hope my expectation is that UACs will outlive the UK's formal membership or current membership of the the EU um, there's even more to understand. We go back perhaps to being the worried academics who, who, who feel we need a forum to understand what's going on and to understand what will become the EU 27. So that's sort of, that's how I would pitch this. And, and, but of course, um, it would be great to hear from both of you whether it's advice or guidance for my successor who in a year's time will be, will be, whoever they may be, will be taking up the chair. You know, how do you see the association's future? You may not gaze into the next fifty, the next fifty years, but how do you see the association's future in, uh, let's call it a Brexit slash post-Brexit environment? Um, any any thoughts? Your insights welcome. I'm not sure I can say very much about how I would predict the association might yeah. go forward, but I would like to say something about about the role of law and legal scholars in that. Because I think there's a parallelism between the two the two phases, not just in in the way that you described it, but also in terms of um, how then at those two phases suddenly everybody becomes a European Union lawyer, or as we would now say, a European Union lawyer. So in the same way that legal scholars were quite prominent in the early uh, years of, of UACs, that perhaps in the middle years was not so obvious. In the same way that um, in the same way that sort of epistemic communities of, of lawyers in different parts of 
professional and academic practice are clearly, as people like Morton Rasmussen have shown, are very clearly um, very much part of the sort of engine of integration that, 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 that got, you know, got moving in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s. Um, so in, in this field, you know, suddenly people are, are, are tweeting out little gifts of Michael Dugan telling the, um, you know, the, the, one of the House of Commons committees exactly what a, you know, a, a, a what, what, you know, a non-tariff barrier to trade is. And I tried asking, Leave campaigners what they were going to do about non-tariff barriers to trade yeah. during the referendum campaign. And it's like, you know, don't, don't be silly. It's all about tariffs. And of course, it's not about tariffs. No. I've been trying to teach about non-tariff barriers yeah. to trade for 30 years, and uh, nobody's ever been much interested. But now, of course, they are interested. And we're all now European Union lawyers. We're all experts on Article 50. We're all experts on this, that, and the other. Um, in, in, in a way that's always been there in an underlying way. There have always been those key lawyer political scientist collaborations that are crucial to the development of the discipline i'm thinking about simon Ballmer and kenneth armstrong on on the single market for example yes. back in back in the in the 1980s um but but uh the, there is that sort of parallelism so it, it, the, the one positive that you can take out of it yeah. in terms of interdisciplinarity is it really proves that you need people working together across the disciplines in a way that I think the ESRC program on Brexit has taken quite a while to really get to grips to understand, uh, you know, uh -huh. just how crucial competence issues are or voting issues, as well as regulatory questions about, you know, what do we understand by mutual recognition or what is the difference between the Norway option, the Canada option, the Ukraine mm. option and so on and so forth. Okay. So, yeah, uh, the centrality of, of legal scholarship to that process yeah. and legal, legal understandings, I think, is at least something positive we can take out of it. And UACES has to be part of that yes. answer because of its capacity to bring those, those discourses into conversation with each other. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, maybe to draw a contrast between, you know, where things were in, in the late 60s and where they are now. I mean, it was a smaller group of people uh, studying the EU. But also quite uh, people from quite different but connected networks. Yeah. You know that uh, that you had other organisations like Chatham House, for example, where you had the same mm -hmm. people. John Pinder, who was the recipient uh, of the first uh, UAC's uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. You know, these were people who were, you know, a group of people who were all quite active in seeking to understand, to explain, but also to uh, make the argument for. Uh, UK uh, EU accession. I think where we are now is clearly we've got more more professionals who would suggest that they are studying the EU. We've got a far more uh, diffuse field, and actually one of the challenges is how you bring people together who are operating in their own individual silos in a way that sort of make connections that are useful uh, at this this particular moment. So, so I think that's something that's worth thinking about. Um, because one of the big changes across time, uh, and you see this very clearly in the literature, is that there were a lot of EU generalists. Yeah. Uh, and now we've got a lot of EU individual area or sub-area mm. specialists. Yes. Uh, and how you're able to marry yeah. those those two things those two things together, which I think is a real uh, a real challenge. But I think also uh, perhaps uh, there is a sort of issue of. Uh, morale, esprit, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of you know, 
at, at the start of the association, there was clearly a project in the direction of travel, which was the idea that the UK should be part of the European integration process. Whereas now there's, there's, there is that uncertainty, isn't there, as to what the destination might look like uh, for the UK. Uh, and so thinking further down the road, you know, is it the case that um, one of the core focuses is going to be you know, the UK exceptionalism? Or is it going to be the case that we have a sort of recurrence of the older debates, which is, you know, what's the re-entry trajectory? Or, yeah. You know, where is the UK in terms of being semi-detached and so on? And that throws up all sorts of different issues, particularly for the study of the EU in the UK, but also how you then become a sort of blended association in a way with perhaps a lump of people who are sort of on the outside or thinking about, you know, how you connect in a different kind of way, whereas the majority perhaps are preoccupied with how the show continues exactly, to operate. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly, because that's the, that's the difference. So coming back to what we yeah. were talking about earlier on in terms of, of you know, the, the sort of the, the en- a lot of the energy of the association coming from, you know, people for whom Brexit, you know, they, they, everyone's saying, well, you know, Schultz and Merkel didn't spend most of their, their debate talking about Brexit. Well, duh, of course not. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's the same, I'm sure, with... With um, many of the panels in the in in the conference mm. are quite rightly getting on with yeah. Yeah. understanding you know new modes of governance, yeah. uh, new di- different types of economic or, or geopolitical security threats yeah. and so on. Yeah. You know, understanding Russia and um, Bre- so so maybe we cannot make the mistake of going in with British exceptionalism. Yeah. Were we to? Go round the circle again. Maybe we can help to to try to overcome that. I'm I'm sceptical as to whether that's possible in the sense that in wider society, you know, British exceptionalism is incredibly healthy and continuing. And sadly, um, you know, a lot of people have just have just got very thick sacking on their head and just can't can't really understand it but maybe academics can play a role in, in trying to do that and the fact that UACs has got this substantial group who are yeah business as usual there's a lot of questions that aren't just Brexit mm. and on that note I think that is a good note I think that is a good place to end that uh, yeah it's not all about Brexit um, Joe, Richard, thank you, thank you very, very much. Uh, my chair, sometimes as chair, has been made all the easier and more enjoyable by the foundations that you put in place, but also by the fact that you're still part of the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, a clan sounds like others are excluded. <laughs> it's not, but that we're still, you're still here, you still come to the conferences, uh, and that means that means an awful lot. And I think, uh, yeah. So thank you both very much for for doing the interview today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.